If you've ever been to like an art exhibit or to maybe a museum and, you know, you're maybe a little more class, you know, you have a little more class than I do and you know what you're looking at. Um, I'm not the greatest on these. You, when you go up and you look at a painting, right, you see these great works of art on the wall. What do you look for? Yeah, I think there's, there's no one way, but some of the ways I think what a lot of people do when they come into these paintings, some love to stand far back, right, to take in the entire scene, to see the full sweep of things, the colors, the contrasts, the light and the dark, the different things that go on in these paintings. Some like to come and they, they look at the characters in the picture, right? This, they see the different people in the scenes and they may ask themselves, I wonder what they're thinking about right now. You know, the Mona Lisa, right, where she has that, that slight smile on her face. What was she thinking whenever you painted her? Are they happy? Are they sad? Are they perhaps noble? Are they perhaps wicked in what they're doing? Others, I think they use the piece to see and they come at it and they try to say, what was the artist saying as a social commentary about their time, about the things that were going on around them? How often is art a picture, right, of what's going on around to speak about things in their day? But others love to come in real close, right, to a painting to see the, the small little brush strokes, each individual stroke, to see how that all comes together to make the overall, to build this overall effect that the painting gives. Well, I think this scene that, that Ashley just read with Luke is one of his great paintings that he has for us. And I think each of these different, four different approaches to this art can apply here. And like I said, I think this scene is rich with the gospel as any in the New Testament. And it's, full, it's so full of artistry, I think it brings the gospel almost into this three-dimensional kind of you-can-touch-it type thing as we see it laid out in front of us. What is it that Jesus offers to the world? Well, I want to look at each one of those. I want to take one of each one of those approaches to art and look at what's going on in this passage. But the first person, though, they, they come back, they take that step back, and as we do, I think we step back and we look at it in this overall effect. And though there are other people that are involved in the scene, right? There are the three main characters that dominate. You see Simon, you see Jesus, and you see this unnamed woman, right? And I think the, the balance of this scene of this piece of art is fabulous. In the middle, you see Jesus who keeps his composure in the midst of what? An outrageous adoration that comes from this woman and a very outrageous rudeness that comes from his host that he's sitting there for. And ultimately, you see Jesus coming up with something fresh and new. And honestly, to the onlookers that are there, just as outrageous as the behavior of the other two that are going on. And like an observer taking in the whole scene, I think the story sweeps back and forth between the three people with such a great possession, a great passion, and a great power involved in it. So we see this from afar. We see this huge scene going on of these outrageous aspects of the players in the scene. But as we zoom in and we start to focus on the players a little bit, we start looking at the individuals and how they play. You see just a few strokes. There's not a lot going on here, but the characters, I think, are very vivid. They're very credible in what they say about them. The first person that we really, I think, that to encounter is this, this man, this Pharisee, Simon, right? 
He's a host to Jesus, and we've been seeing throughout, there's a lot of questions about who this man Jesus is, right, that came from this nowhere Nazareth, that has been speaking powerful things, that has been doing powerful things, that has been saying things that no one else has the authority to say. And there's this man, Simon, who is a Pharisee, who invites Jesus into his house. He's not completely opposed to Jesus, like we a lot of times think with the Pharisees, right? At least not to start with. He's just as curious as many others are of who this Jesus is. And if you know anything about the Pharisees, there's many factions within the Pharisaical movement, but a majority, I think, would look, if they were kind of like in today's kind of idea, they would likely be more considered to be the, the very hard line, the very conservative understanding of believers, in their, especially in their social status. They were very hard line in things. Some were, uh, were willing to give Jesus a chance, it seems, though not many. But you have this man, right? He'd heard rumors about Jesus that he was maybe a what? You remember back in earlier in chapter 7, what was the rumor that was started about Jesus that he was a great what? A great prophet, right? Back in verse 16 of chapter 7, that the rumor had been spread, a great prophet has appeared among us, and God has come to help his people, right? And he wants to see it for himself, I believe. He invites Jesus in to see for himself, is this man truly who they say he is? And I think in verse 39, if you look, it says that, I think what it is, he thinks he knows the answer to that question. He thinks he's found the answer, right? And he, his answer is, there's absolutely no way. You can put that up. You can put verse 39 up there. There's absolutely no way, why? Since he does not understand what type of woman it is that's coming and touching his feet. But in finding his answer, he's proved very quickly to be doubly wrong. How? Well, first it says that Jesus knows exactly who she was and who she now is, right? She's a what? A forgiven sinner. And second, Jesus knows what Simon is thinking about. If you notice, actually in the very first two verses... Three times it's pointed out, and I think Luke does this on purpose. Three times it's pointed out that this man is a what? In verse 36 and verse 37, three times he is pointed out to be a Pharisee. No, the man, he is pointed out to be a Pharisee. Now, when the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house, and then Jesus was dining at the Pharisee's house he brought. He wants you to understand something. Luke wants you to understand that he is at the religious leader's house, the people that, have, that are in charge of worship to God in the, the lives of the Jews. And yet what happens right in the middle of the scene, right in this dinner, when everything else seems to be going very well, in walks an uninvited guest, right? A woman who, I, it, although it doesn't actually explicitly say here, it, it doesn't say, but I believe that actually a woman who had an earlier unwritten encounter with Jesus before this happens. I believe something happened either on his way into the town or before dinner, before he's even there. This woman has an encounter with Jesus and she is coming in response to whatever it was that happened before. 
And I think today, I mean, and, and to be fair, dinner parties, now some of you go, like, this is a really weird scene, right? Like somebody just walks in the scene and like, how does this even happen? Because what do we do, right? We build our houses today. We've got a really small front porch, right? A little stoop in our huge backyards with our eight foot fences that we have privacy. And no, when we have guests over, we don't want anybody else coming over, right? We don't want anybody else to know what's going on. That's how we do it. But in these times, you left the front door. When you'd have a party, when you'd have a dinner, you'd leave the front door wide open. And you know what would actually happen from time to time in Jewish houses? People would just walk in. People that are just merely passing by. Hey, what's going on in there? Believe it or not. You'd also have beggars that would come in and go come begging for food. Maybe they had nothing. Remember those laws of Leviticus that when you're taking care of your neighbor? If you left your door open, it's an inviting thing to come in to be taken care of. And it might just be your friends dropping in. How many of you love when people just drop in, right? No, this was just, but this was normal. People would just drop into your house and be expected to be a part of what's going on. But this woman, she walks in and she is not expected. She is not what? Welcomed in his doors. Because she is a what? A sinner. Now it's interesting. Fabulous and little side note. It is not said what she is known as a sinner for. Okay? Do not read into this of what she is. Many, many in church history have actually even made this woman out to be Mary Magdalene. Many have made her out to be a prostitute. I challenge you to find that in Scripture. It does not say. It says that she is a sinful woman, but there is something about her that keeps her from being welcomed in this man's house, in this place where Jesus is welcomed in. And this woman walks in with one intent, with an intent to what? To anoint Jesus. And she's going to anoint him with the, what would women, uh, Jewish women would wear a lot of times wear the, a small vial around their neck. And it would be in a little alabaster jar. And it would be a very expensive perfume used to kind of around their neck for something. She is coming in, a Jewish woman coming in to anoint Jesus with the expensive oil. But what happens? In verse 47, we learn something about her. Why is it that she's coming in to do this? In verse 47, it's because it's an expression of a grateful love because she has received God's overflowing forgiveness at that earlier encounter that she had with Jesus. That we don't know what happened, but something happened in this woman's life that she experiences the generosity and the forgiveness of Jesus. Now, kind of to set the scene here, because this is sometimes a little weird. We actually kind of portray a lot of times, where do we sit, right? We have dinner, we get over around the table, we're all in chairs. And it seems kind of weird if you think somebody's sitting in a chair, right? And somebody's coming in from behind, like how are they getting to their feet, right? Well, that doesn't, it, it seems a little weird. She's like crawling under the table. What is she doing? No, in, in this time, and I've got a picture up here, do you kind of see what they would do? This is just an artist's rendition. People would recline. When they say they were reclining at the table, they literally were reclining at the table, one arm down, laying down, where your feet would be hanging behind you, away from the table that was on the ground like this, okay? And this woman walks in, and the first place that she would reach on Jesus would be his what? His feet. Makes sense. She would have approached him from behind, and her goal was to anoint. And where is the typical place to anoint somebody with oil? Jesus even mentions it about Simon in this passage, on the head. 
But this woman, what? She never even makes it that far. Why? Because when she finds herself before him, she is so overwhelmed and her feet and his feet are wet with her tears before she can even get the jar open. But that's not the craziest part there. That's not the part, her, her coming in, kissing feet's a sign of respect. He's a, he's a rabbi, right? He's a rabbi coming by. He may be even a prophet, and this is a little bit much, right? That he's, he's allowing this sinful woman, perhaps very well-known sinful woman, to be kissing his feet. But in an attempt to kind of make things better from her tears being all over her feet, in the eyes of others, she does something far worse and makes the situation far worse than it was before. Anybody know what she does? She lets down her hair. Now to you and I, we go, and? <laughs> but in the Jewish tradition, in this understanding, in this society, letting your hand down your hair, I'm going to be a little risque, is just about as risque as her coming in without her top on. This woman comes in to Jesus and lets her hair down while kissing his feet. Her hair is down over her feet. And this is as scandalous as you can possibly get about what this woman is doing to the feet of this man. And Simon says, interestingly, in Simon's first address to Jesus, what does he call him? He does not call him prophet. He calls him what? teacher. He's already knocking him down in his eyes because there is no way, Jesus, that you would let this woman be doing what she's doing if you knew God. But she does not care. And who else doesn't seem to care? Jesus. And what does she do? She wipes his feet. She kisses them as a sign of respect all the while. And finally, doing what she came to do to anoint them with the oil. I imagine if you're one of these other guys sitting around the table, what world's going on here? This does not fit with the God that the Pharisees thought he looked like. If you are righteous and you are good, you are allowed in. If you are a sinner, you are to be kept out. And you are not to come anywhere near until you are made right. Until you change who you are, you are nowhere, not allowed anywhere near. And this Jesus blows all of this up and says, that is not the way my kingdom is done. So we see the characters. What about the, let's get into the eyes of the artist a little bit. Showing what his world was like when we see this. You know, in other words, like showing what happens when God's love in the gospel has impact upon a human life. That's what Luke is trying to show us here. If you remember a few weeks ago, a few weeks back, we've been preaching through Luke and going back to his time in Nazareth, right? When he's preaching about what he's going to do, what he's going to bring when he unscrolls that scroll of Isaiah, what he says he's going to bring there, and in his great sermon on the plain, Jesus does what? He takes the way our world thinks that things are, and he stands it upon its head and says, the way that we look at the world is completely upside down from what God's kingdom truly looks like. Because God's kingdom is one we have seen in his sermon and those things of overabundant generosity. 
His kingdom is about a surprising and even sometimes scandalous grace. Giving to somebody that doesn't deserve. And sometimes, at the same time, there's a fierce opposition which would meet God's judgment. And here we sit in this man's house and we see all of this happening, what? Collectively as one in front of us. See, I think what happens when the gospel takes hold, when the gospel truly is understood what it means and what it does, it takes social conventions and it throws them out the window. What the world would think what it would look like is completely removed and forgiveness and love set new standards and they raise new expectations. And that's what Jesus brings in this man's house. And what we see is that real human beings appear not as society considers them or not as society has constructed them to be, but as God sees them. And I love this. The story is a big story of reversal. And Luke is full of these, right? You know the story of the prodigal son who goes out away, right? And in a great reversal, he comes back and finds that his father welcomes. Or the picture of the Pharisee who stands close and with his hands raised high and says, thank God I'm not like that guy who's a terrible, I do all these things and I'm not like that guy, the sinner. Or the tax collector who stands far away and says, God, have merciful on me, a sinner. See, Luke's, Luke, I believe, and he comes after Christ, he lives in a church which I believe is coming to terms with God's reversing, his astonishing reversal of fortune that happens in the lives of others. Many Jews, that by the time Luke is writing this, have rejected Jesus. They've rejected the message about him. They want nothing to do with him. And many non-Jews were accepting it and flooding into the church, delighted as this woman was, that their sins were forgiven by the God of generous love. And then you have the final look at the piece of art, the one that kind of comes at it with the close little details to see the story when, when things build together and to see all these strokes. And I think we, one thing I want to point out we notice is that Jesus reverses things on others. When you look at Simon, right? When you look at Simon, what does he do? We see one in, that is guilty of what? Poor hospitality, now you think, okay, that's not, that, that's not that serious, right? I mean, he didn't anoint Jesus' head. He didn't greet him with a kiss. He didn't wash his feet, right? I mean, he's guilty of something small, right? But in their society, that's almost as big of a no-no as what this woman's doing coming in, letting down her hair. And Jesus tells this parable, right, about two debtors, one with 50 days wages and one with 500 days wages, and both when they are what? Key thing, when they are what? Both are unable to pay it. Unable to pay that debt are what? Released. And he says that one sees what they were released from, and one does not. And this man, Simon, I think it shows, he, comes, we, we, he never comes to terms with the depth of his own heart. 
he never sees the debt that he owes. And as such, he does not appreciate God's generous love when it sits in person at his own table. God's love is sitting right in front of him across from that table, and he can't even see it. Oh, how easily we can miss Jesus when he's sitting right in front of us. But in contrast, we have this woman who understands the true release that Jesus offers. You remember back in chapter four, in that Isaiah passage, our word from Luke four, that we're gonna see over and over through Luke, the word aphesis, right? The Greek word aphesis, to release from a burden, to remove the weight of a crushing debt is what Jesus came to do. And here it is in action. At some point, Jesus has met this woman and he has released the, and removed the weight of debt that is crushing her. And not just merely, we're not talking about, about a monetary one, but one that is a spiritual one, one that is a social debt, one that is even an emotional debt. She is forgiven, Jesus says what? Much. And when she comes to Jesus at his feet, she's overwhelmed by it. And what is her response to it? To the for being forgiven much? What is her response? To what? To love much. And I love what he says at the very end of the, this, this chapter, the last, last verse, he says, the thing, how does she experience this release? By her what? Not by her works, not by what she's come to do, not by what she's doing now, but by her faith. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I think the big idea from this chapter, and I, I love this, is this, this is building this whole idea. We see people with great faith. This chapter has been about those who have faith in Jesus. And I think the big idea here that he comes up with, Luke's coming up with is this, is that true faith is what happens when someone looks at Jesus and discovers God's forgiveness. And the sign of this proof of faith is their love. You know, I want to I I finish here and I want to think about this. As I look at this, this story, I see like Jesus, this same Jesus that is here, and what we come here on this Sunday in particular of all Sundays to celebrate is that he made this offer of release and forgiveness for everyone, for all to come and find it in him. And what we celebrate this weekend is what? That Jesus gave his life to pay the debt that none of us could pay. And he did this to offer his father's overwhelming forgiveness. But not only does he offer this forgiveness, not only does he offer up his death to us, the death that paid the price that we could not pay, but he offers up what? We celebrate his resurrection from the dead that offers us an eternal life and an eternal fellowship with this generous God forever. Do you know him? 
Do you know this Jesus? Because he offers this to each one of us, but we must be willing to accept it. If you don't, I call you to taste and see, as the word says, that the Lord is good. Nothing else will satisfy except for Jesus. And for those of us who do, those of you that do know him, well, today what do we do? And we got to do it earlier and we're gonna continue doing it is we get to celebrate this, the great debt release that we have found in Jesus and we get to celebrate the resurrection today. What? Of the hope we have, not in life after death to go off to be on some cloud, but we celebrate life that comes after life, after death, when Jesus, who is our first fruits, who is risen from the dead, who is in a perfect body to forever be, we as believers in Jesus get to celebrate that we will one day, we have a hope that we will be raised from the dead forever removed from corruption to live in fellowship with him forever, eternally on the new earth with him as our king, the rightful one who earned it on the cross of Calvary. Amen? Amen. So we gather together today to worship him for eternity together. Let's sing.